Hello, computer. This is Hello, computer. A series of interviews carried out in 2023, at a time when artificial intelligence appears to be going everywhere all at once. Our next interview is with Alex Huth of the University of Texas in Austin. Hi, my name is Alex Huth. I am uh, an assistant professor of computer science and neuroscience at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, my work is really at the intersection of AI and neuroscience. We're looking at how these two things come together, how we can use modern AI to learn how the brain works, and maybe how we can use uh, the brain to hopefully one day build better AI systems. How's your year been then? Has it been a, an interesting year? Um, is this year dif different to previous years, or how's it going? It's been a very exciting year, I think. Uh, a lot has happened in the AI world, certainly. Um, much more than I think uh, any of us maybe would have expected. Uh, and it's been very active for us as well. Although, I, I don't know, in a way, I think we kind of got lucky, if you will, like riding on this AI hype that, uh, you know, we had this thing that has been, you know, we've been working on it for years. Finally, it's it's coming out, but uh, it's really coming just on the coattails of, uh, you know, all these big advances in AI that are happening. Well, let's rewind, and, and I believe let's rewind, what, a decade and a half? You've been working on this for 15 years or so, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, I guess I, I started in grad school 15 years ago and started working on a project very related to this. We were trying to do actually exactly this thing um, with the technology that we had at the time, which ended up being insufficient, or at least like there were two big missing ingredients at the time. One of them was um, the big neural network models that we have now. Uh, which are very effective, very important to our work. Uh, in the recent paper that we had, we used GPT-1 as kind of the core of, of our model. Uh, and then the other thing is the very big data sets that we have now. So we have sort of much better uh, data sets for individual human subjects. So how did you go from, what did, what did they look like when you first started this research um, 15 years ago? I mean, I guess, did you have anything like the large language models that we have this year? I mean, what what was the kind of technology that you were dealing with 15 years ago? Yeah, absolutely not. So uh, 15 years ago, um, let's see, this really kind of stemmed from uh, some really excellent work from Tom Mitchell and Marcel Just's groups at Carnegie Mellon, where um, they showed that they could predict fMRI responses to individual words. These were... I think concrete nouns were all of their their stimuli uh, using uh, a form of word embedding. So word embeddings are uh, you know have been a big tool in computational linguistics for a couple decades now, um, especially in the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, the idea is that for each word you can assign it a vector of numbers, like a, a set of numbers that describes something about what that word means. Right. So the words that have similar meaning uh, will have numbers that are similar. Right, will occupy nearby positions in this sort of space of, of words. Uh, so they had this great paper where they showed that they could use these word embeddings to predict brain responses to individual uh, words. And we thought, let's extend that to natural language. Let's do this kind of thing, but with uh, people you know, listening to stories or reading you know, magazine articles or newspaper articles. So we spent a lot of time playing around with like different types of stimuli, different kind of approaches to doing this. 
my um, collaborator at the time, Wendy Dehir, uh, had the very clever idea of let's just use a podcast. Let's use these like fun stories. Um, we use these stories from the Moth Radio Hour, which are they're just really good. They're like very well told stories by people who are very good storytellers, um, and they're interesting and they're you know uh, emotionally salient. They're just very good stories. So she said, let's just use this, and it turns out that that worked fantastically well. And so we were able to start building these kind of word embedding based models of uh, of brain responses. Those, you know, were quite good for their time. Like they're very effective. Uh, you know, we had some very nice work, I think, stemming out of that, where we could map out all the different parts of cortex and how they respond to different types of words. And we thought those models were like pretty effective, pretty performant. Uh, but they still sort of the underlying assumption there was that. Like every time you hear a word, so like every time you hear the word penguin, uh, you get some pattern of activity appears in your brain. And it doesn't matter like what the words were before penguin or after penguin, uh, whatever the response is to penguin, it's like that's going to kind of overlay on what's happening in your brain. And this is obviously not how we understand language, right? It matters what words are there, like what order they come in and so on. So uh, yeah, so our, our models at that time were really quite limited. Um, the real breakthrough sort of innovation there came uh, a little bit later in, I guess, 2017, 2018, when we started building uh, these encoding models, models that predict brain responses to language uh, using neural network language models. So at that time, it was um, not these transformer models that are you know, de rigueur today. It was uh, uh, LSTM, like recurrent neural network language models, but those were still much more effective than the word embedding-based models that we had before. And so that was where things really started to take off, I think. This was scanning a brain and seeing what where, where the blood flow was or, or or just the electrical signals that were that were being could be snapped by um by a scanner, is that right? Right. So not electrical signals, but blood flow. Okay. So we're using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. So um, this uses a, an MRI scanner, these big magnetic fields, to actually look at where there's blood flow in the brain. So this this uh, sort of hinges on the fact that oxygenated and deoxygenated blood actually have slightly different magnetic properties because its hemoglobin is like an iron-containing protein. So uh, whether it has oxygen bound or not actually changes its magnetic properties slightly. So using MRI, we can see where there's more or less oxygenated blood in the brain. And it turns out that when neurons are active, when they uh, start to shoot out signals, that takes a lot of energy. So they then call out uh, and say, like, I need more energy. And this causes uh, all the blood vessels around them to dilate slightly and send more blood into that area. Uh, and that's the signal that we can actually measure with fMRI. Now, one of the key things I think to understand here is that uh, the signal we measure with fMRI, we call it BOLD, blood oxygen level dependent signal, the BOLD signal. Uh, it's a very mushy and especially slow proxy for neural activity. Right. So you could have a, a brief burst of neural activity, say it's you know a tenth of a second long, just a, a thing of neural activity. Uh, the blood flow signal that corresponds to that, it's actually going to ramp up over the course of maybe three or four seconds and then ramp down over another five, six, seven seconds. So you have this burst of neural activity, a tenth of a second long, and you have this 10 second, you know, boop, 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 boop. Of, of blood flow. So this means that uh, our sort of temporal precision is very low with fMRI. 
it kind of makes up for that with spatial precision. So we get a very sort of fine-grained spatial information. We can see what's happening in uh, not quite cubic millimeters, but our, our the individual chunks of brain that we measure are on the order of you know, two and a half millimeters on a side. Uh, but the temporal information is is kind of lost. So the basic experiment that we do is we put people in an MRI scanner, and then we have them just listen to podcasts. Like that's that's it. That's our experiment. That's ninety nine percent of the experiments we do are just that. Uh, and it turns out that that kind of experiment you can do a lot with it because within these podcasts, within this data, there's a lot of variation. Right? It's like people, uh, we have them listen to stories, and the stories are about a lot of different things. They cover a lot of different topics. It's different speakers using different words, speaking in different accents. Uh, so there's just a lot of different things. There's a lot of variability that we can uh, use to build these models that then we'll predict. So uh, we have a new story that the person listens to. Can we predict how their brain would respond to that story? That's kind of our basic tool. So is that lag, like I just had, <laughs> is that always going to be there? Or is there always going to be a lag between me hearing the word penguin and my brain firing off and as, as, with the penguin signal, and then you being able to see that I've just thought the word penguin a, a number of seconds later? Is that that's that's a, a built-in... Uh, yeah, um, that's, that's pretty inherent to the bold signal. That we use in fMRI, right? That is uh, just like a thing about fMRI is that it has this built-in lag. Uh, there are other neuroimaging methodologies that get around this that directly measure sort of neural signals. Probably the most promising for that kind of purpose is MEG, magnetoencephalography, where you actually measure the magnetic fields that are put off by um, neurons being active. So when neurons uh, fire a bunch of signals off, this creates tiny magnetic fields that we can measure outside the skull, which is immediate, but unfortunately still like lower spatial resolution than fMRI. As well as the the AI side of things, the, the large language models and the GPT elements that you've, you've we talked about, um, the actual scanning technology must have um, improved over the last 15 years as well. Um, was that exp is, is that the case or not? Certainly, it's better than it was then. Uh, we do have, like, uh, interestingly, all the improvements are kind of on the software side. Uh, so we're using more or less the same MRI scanner that we were using 15 years ago. It's still a three Tesla system. It's no more powerful itself. Um, but uh, MRI physicists are extremely clever people. They've come up with a lot of really neat tricks that you can do in, like, programming the scanner to make it collect more data more quickly at finer resolution. Uh, so we use a lot of those tricks now, which certainly I think give us a boost in data quality, but it's, you know, that's a marginal kind of thing. I think the sort of amount of data that we have from individual subjects is maybe more important than like the exact quality of the data. So which elements took you by surprise, do you think, in terms of the technology? The thing that most surprised me is that language models are so effective. That these language models, the neural network language models, are so good at doing all these different things. That, honestly, is something that I didn't expect. Um, so uh, I remember back in I don't know 2015, 2016, uh, I was uh, I had a conversation with um, Andre Karpathy, who's uh, one of the you know luminaries of kind of modern AI, um, and I was telling him that you know I think uh, what we need to do to make you know, neural network models that really understand language is we need to train them to uh, directly model the human brain because we know that the human brain understands language and so blah. 
And he was pretty skeptical of this. He said, I think just making them auto-regressive, making them predict the next word, that actually gets you a lot. And I was like, I don't believe that. Like, how, how could that be? He was 100% right. Uh, it turns out that just being able to predict the next word in a piece of text, that is kind of a magnificent ability in, in a lot of ways that I think was underappreciated by a lot of people for a long time. It turns out that to do that very, very well, you have to know a lot. You have to know a lot about how language works. You have to know a lot about how words go together. You have to know a lot about how the world works too, right? These models end up learning models of the world. They end up learning kind of like how things work in the real world because in order to just predict the next word in a piece of text that's describing something in the real world, you kind of have to understand something about the real world. Once people hear that this is being done in an MRI, in a scanner, the they are instantly going to think that this is mind reading. Um I believe that you're not happy with that phrase and that brain decoding is, is is a more accurate phrase. Can you tell us the difference between brain decoding and mind reading? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we try to avoid saying mind reading because uh, we think it has connotations that are not exactly like truthful to what we're doing. Um, like, yeah, we can say brain decoding. That's fine. I, I don't think we really have a good alternative to, to mind reading. It's just that like, I think that conjures up things that aren't necessarily what our technology does. So maybe, I don't know, can you tell me, like, what do you think mind reading means? Like, what, what does that mean to you that some something can read your mind? The contents of my head on, on a piece of paper somewhere is what I would think would be mind reading. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think your last point there is kind of the, the critical one, right? That it's like, maybe it's things that you don't even know yourself. Right? I feel like this is sort of the connotation that people have about mind reading is that it's like, you know, your little reactions to things, your sort of, uh, you know, you hear somebody saying something and you say like, ah, oh, that's, I don't believe that for a second. And that's just like a, you know, a momentary kind of reaction. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, in, in, you know, popular fiction, if somebody can read minds, it's like, that's what they're getting at. Right. Like that's, that's what they're interested in. Uh, and that kind of thing, I think we don't have any evidence that our models <clears throat> can actually do that can like pull out these little things, these little thoughts. Uh, I think we have some anecdotal evidence that they can't actually do that, at least currently. Yeah, that doesn't mean that they will always be unable to do that, but uh, I don't think we can do that yet. What we can do currently is we can read out um, uh, essentially what is the main thing that's running through your brain at this moment, right? So if you are listening to someone tell you a story, our models can read out kind of what the contents of that story are. Uh, if you are imagining telling a story inside your head, the model can read out what story you were imagining telling. If you are watching a video of something happening, our model can read out kind of what is happening in the video. But it doesn't read out kind of what your reaction is to that video. Right. So this is something that is very anecdotal. Uh, I was one of the subjects in this study, so I, you know, I saw like what was decoded from my brain uh, while you know I was watching this video, and I remember my own reactions to this video. There's a particular scene that I think we include in our demo of this, where uh, it's this animated video. Um, uh, the character, this woman, is like reaching out her hands to this wounded like baby dragon, um, and she's you know going to like touch it, and then she's uh, you know sort of caring for it uh, after it's been wounded. And I remember thinking in this moment like. Don't do that. It's going to bite you. Like, this is a wild animal that's wounded. Like, don't touch it. Like, that's a ridiculous thing to do. And that didn't come out at all in the decoded version. What came out was like, uh, you know, I reached out my hand, um, you were hurt, and then I, you know, cleaned your blood or something like this. And 
you know, it was just describing what was kind of on the screen or like what was the main thing that was happening. And it wasn't describing uh, these little kind of responses. And again, anecdotal, but I think like what we're doing still doesn't feel like mind reading to me. It's very interesting to hear, though, that you've been a guinea pig yourself then in your own um, um, experiments. Uh, can you give us a sense of how it felt as a human being then to um, to have your thoughts decoded in that way? I mean, that must, especially because you know what how you, you know better than anybody else how this works under the hood. Um, this isn't a parlor trick, um, or it can be seen as a parlor trick, I believe. But you're seeing this as as the real science. How did that feel? Very exciting for me because it's like I, I want it to work well. Or it's like that's that's the good thing. Uh, I'm a big believer in scientists being subjects in their own experiments. I think that's very important, especially for the kind of experimental, you know, psychology neuroscience work that that we do. Um, we ask people to go back in an MRI scanner over and over and over again. We had them scanned for like 20 sessions uh, of data for this. So that's like you know coming back once a week or once every other week for a couple hours and laying in the MRI scanner. Um, and that seems like a lot. And I don't want to put people through that unless I'm like willing to do that myself. Uh, and I, I think it's really helped us kind of also optimize the experiment in terms of like, let's make it as pleasant as possible for the subject, because that you know makes them more likely to want to come back and do this over and over again, which is something that we need. And I think it also just gives us better data quality in general. If the person is engaged, if they care about like what's happening in the in stimuli, if they're good stories they're listening to, if they're not bored, if they're not falling asleep, these are all good things that, that we want the subject to have. In terms of like, yeah, seeing the results of this, you know, decoding, like what what could it read out of my brain? Uh I think I was just like very excited by this and gratified that things like the imagined story. So that was like that was a lot of work. You know, we had to like memorize these little segments of stories and then practice telling them over and over again. Uh and, you know, try our best to like, you know, say this thing in our heads in the MRI scanner so that it could read out the story. And the fact that that worked at all, you know, it was definitely lower quality than like listening to a story. But the fact that that worked at all, I was like very deeply gratified by. <laughs> I could see why you were gratified by that. But what about those people that perhaps weren't involved as much with the with the, the, the science behind it, the, the people perhaps like me, you, you pulled it off the street and you said, right, listen to this podcast. How many people literally had their minds blown perhaps? You know, how many people... Just have you have, have all your patients come back for another scan, or have any of them said, "I'm sorry, that's too much. I can't do that." Nobody's nobody said that. Everybody has been willing to come back for more scans because uh, I think everyone's pretty excited about this, and I think everyone sees kind of the the potential for it to be something like big and useful, and I think helpful for a lot of people in the world. So that's that's our kind of grand dream, and I think uh, our our subjects are. Um, you know, interested in that as well. Well, let's look at that. What what are, what are the grand schemes of this? What what are the grand plans for this? What can it do for us in the near future and in the far future? The sort of short term, shortish term thing that we really want to do with this is we want to use it to help people who can't otherwise communicate. Right. So uh, there are several different medical conditions that can leave people uh, in a state where they're cognitively okay, but maybe unable to to verbalize or communicate, right? So locked-in syndrome is a classic version of this. Uh, uh, motor neuron disease um, can also cause this. Um, perhaps something like Broca's aphasia, which is where um, a person is unable to speak in sort of coherent sentences, even though they can think and understand language normally. 
in all of these things, um, they're disorders of communication, right? So we're hopeful to some extent that the kind of technology that we're developing here could be applied um, to helping these people communicate. Uh, that's not like a very short-term thing. I said short-ish term because um, the technology as it currently exists, you know, it uses a uh, big MRI scanner, which is like a multi-million dollar machine. It costs us, you know, a thousand dollars an hour to collect MRI data. Uh, it's this like big, expensive, like operation to do this. Uh, that's not very practical for these purposes, right? That's that's not going to be something that people can do at home, right? Uh, unless they are, you know, whatever, billionaire wealthy. Uh, so one of the things that we're looking at is. Um, trying to move this into other kinds of neuroimaging technologies that might be more portable or more useful like outside of this this you know large scale context that we work in so the one that we're most interested in there is um something called functional near infrared spectroscopy fnirs uh this is kind of a newer brain imaging methodology so do you know the um little clip they put on your finger in the hospital to measure your blood oxygenation yep it's that but applied to your head more or less. So you shine bright infrared lights through the skull, you measure, you know, you have a bunch of sensors on the head that measure how the light uh, sort of passes through the brain. Uh, and you can use that to figure out blood oxygenation inside the brain, much like, you know, MRI measures blood oxygenation. So it's fundamentally the same signal as fMRI, which is why we're kind of hopeful that our techniques will apply uh, directly. It does give you lower spatial resolution. So you don't get this, you know, fine-grained like millimeter by millimeter information that we get with fMRI, but uh, it's still uh, reasonably good, and it has the potential to be actually something that could be in a helmet. I think the best current systems are still like you know pretty large things that are sitting in a lab, right? That have uh, big banks of equipment running them. But it's like this could potentially be something that actually operates in a in like a sort of small uh, consumer kind of scale. So. I think that's still like several years out, but we're working on trying to get our technology working in that kind of setting. And that, that would be, I think, one of the big steps uh, towards making it work for people in a way that's helpful. Uh, one of the other things that's important there is just also making it better, right? So it's like, currently it works, I think, better than we would have expected, but not to the level where it would necessarily be like very useful for someone to communicate yet, right? So uh, it still gets a lot of things wrong, um, a way that we describe this in the paper and other things is uh, uh, it's good at getting the gist. It's good at decoding the gist of something. So it's like, what are you talking about? What vaguely is kind of you know the tone of this? Uh, what's the uh, what kinds of phrases are you using, etc. But um, the precise precise meaning, right? So like, uh, did you say I was going to turn left or I was going to turn right? Did you say he or she? Did you say uh, I or you know he or she? Uh, these are the kinds of things that are kind of lost by the model currently. It doesn't have the kind of resolution to get at that. And those are the kinds of things that I think are probably quite important if you're you know uh, trying to communicate uh, using this kind of device. So you know of course we're trying to make it better in those respects as well. And so what about you mentioned consumer products there? So mm -hmm. where realistically can we expect this to go in? In say a decade or two decades, um, would consumer use be possible within a couple of decades? It's possible. Uh, it might also be impossible, right? So we we don't really know. Um, so yeah, there, there's some probability that it's possible. There's some possibility that like this just will not work in in this kind of way. Uh, 
Yeah. So I think the, um, you know, I'm not a technologist. I, I don't like dream about these things all the time. I think the, the version of this that uh, we could kind of foresee is something like, suppose this worked with FNIRs um, and suppose that there were FNIR systems that were small enough and cheap enough that you could use them at home, right? Uh, for one, that could be like very helpful to people who need to communicate, who have difficulty communicating. Uh, but for two, this could maybe serve as something that you use uh, as an extra way to communicate with your own like devices. So with your computer, say, uh, maybe you don't need to totally, um, you know, have all your interaction be through typing or like saying things out loud, which we still don't use very often. But just the computer can guess what you're thinking. You know, it knows like what you want, uh, and it just does things for you. Uh, maybe this would be a way to interface with like a, a phone to write things. I don't know. Um, I think there's probably a lot of clever use cases for this that, that we haven't come up with, but that are uh, you know possibilities. But that that's the kind of realm of things that I think could potentially be possible. In fairness, it's not your job to come up with these consumer products, is it? So um, I, I can I can understand why you're not brainstorming those, but I can also understand why other people are. I mean, that, that sounds like a portable Neuralink that doesn't require an operation. That sounds exactly. like, yeah. And so I imagine there are a lot of people that are watching this with dollar signs in their eyes thinking, yeah, where can this go? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of ethical conversations to be had. And are those ethical conversations being had by the right people? Um, that you're aware of? I think so, yes. So uh, that's something that we took really seriously in in this work too. So, uh, you know, I think our first thought when we saw that this was working was like, finally, like, hell yes, thank God this finally works. And the second thought was like, oh my God, this works. Like, what what does this mean? So um, my grad student, Jerry Tang, who was the lead author and like did all this decoding work, uh, he went and read a lot of the literature on sort of uh, neuroethics, uh, ethics of neural decoding, which there is actually a fair bit of literature on now. There's a community of uh, legal scholars, philosophers, neuroscientists who you know work in this kind of space and want to talk about uh, you know what are the potential issues here as they're starting to arise. Right? It's, it's better to be proactive about this than than reactive. Right? So um, Gary went and read a lot of this literature, and uh, he came up with some experiments that we did to kind of test what are the ethical implications of our brain decoding system that we developed. So um, a couple of things in particular were uh, uh, we wanted to test whether uh, could the person whose brain we're decoding from, could they control what comes out, right? Could they make it not work if they wanted to, or could they choose between different things that they want to output? Uh, and we found that the answer was yes to both of those things. Um, they could resist the de- the decoder by like thinking other things. Um, so we had them do tasks like just name as many animals as you can while you're listening to a story, and then we try to decode what the story was, and that just goes to chance. There's nothing there when somebody's doing this task. We had somebody do, uh, or somebody, all the subjects do um, what we call a cocktail party task. So we had them listen to two um, stories at the same time. And then uh, to either pay attention to one or pay attention to the other. Uh, and then we could decode you know, the words that they're listening to. And all that we could decode was the one that they were paying attention to. The other one was gone. right? So they could control sort of what was happening in the decoder at that scale. Uh, we also tested, um, you know, so we, it took a lot of training data 
to fit these models, right? So uh, with each of our subjects, they went in the scanner, I think we used 16 sessions of data, so 16 hours of training data for each subject, which is quite a lot. This takes like months of them going back in the scanner over and over and over again. Uh, so we asked like, do you need all that to actually use this model? Can you just take somebody new, put them in the scanner and then you know, run the model on them? And the answer to that was no, like that didn't work, at least with our current technology, right? So uh, that's something that might change in the future, but at least currently it's like we, we can't do that. So we need all this training data from a person, which I think is good in some respects and bad in other respects, right? It makes it harder to use this to help people, but uh, better in the sense that like nobody's just going to decode your brain immediately. Like you need to go through this arduous training process. But then you also asked like, are these conversations being had and, and by which people? And uh, I think they really are. So somebody who um, you know we've paid a lot of attention to is uh, Nita Farahani, who is uh, a neuroethicist. I think she's a lawyer by training, but also um, you know, works in philosophy and it's sort of intersection of, of neuroscience. Uh, and she's uh, written a great book on this topic. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I think there's there is a lot of chatter around this right now, and I think that's good that we're having that conversation before it maybe really becomes uh, a very big issue. It is already an issue in like some respects, but yeah. Do you think individuals are, um, are know enough, um, are taking enough interest in in the AI revolution? Um, yeah, at the individual level, is there an education that is necessary, self education? That is necessary that perhaps wasn't required for for previous technologies yes i very much think so uh i think more so for other kind of areas of ai than exactly what we're doing here i mean we are kind of making a point of trying to talk to people and trying to make it clear to people like what this kind of technology can do and what it can't do so for example um I'm, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here. I hope you uh, bear with me. So um, uh, some misconceptions that we see are like, could this be done at a distance, right? Could this be done to you without you like knowing that it's being done? I mean, that's pure science fiction right now. Uh, we don't know how that would even work if it could work. So if that kind of thing could exist, it would be decades away at least, right? Where you could record what's happening in someone's brain without being right, you know, putting them in a gigantic machine, which is our current level, uh, even like putting them in a helmet, which is the next level that doesn't exist yet and may not even work for these purposes, uh, to like doing it without any kind of thing whatsoever, just from afar. And that is just pure science fiction. So that, that like doesn't exist. And I think it's important that people know that and understand that, uh, even if they don't, you know, work in this space or know a lot about this technology. Another misconception that I see a lot that is, uh, uh, Interesting because to neuroscientists, I feel like it's kind of obvious, but to other people, it's it's not. Is the idea that something like this could, uh, could extract your memories, could like decode your memories, right? And I, I've seen this a lot in how people talk about our work and how people think about it and what they're scared of, uh, and that is just very fundamentally different than decoding like what is happening in your brain right now. So the analogy that I like to use for this is. Uh, Imagine your brain is a computer, right? Uh, what we are doing with this decoder is uh, we're kind of looking at what's on the screen of the computer, right? So we're able to see like, what are you doing right now, right? Like what what is happening in your brain right now? And even then it's like, we're only seeing the main thing, right? Uh, 
your memories are like your hard drive on the computer, right? Uh, you can't see everything that's on the hard drive by just looking at the screen. I mean, you could if you opened up every individual file that's on the hard drive and showed it on the screen, which would be like asking someone to recall every single memory that they have and think about it for a while, which is not, I think, what people usually think about when they think of, you know, could this pull out your memories? So memories are stored in a very different kind of format in the brain. There are these, you know, microscopic connections between neurons that there are trillions of that we wouldn't even know how to measure if we could, you know, freeze a brain and slice it up into sections. It's like, we don't even really know how to measure this at that scale. Uh, yeah. So that's another kind of misconception that I think it's important for people to know and understand uh, in general. I think in um, kind of other parts of AI worlds, like things that are happening in the AI world right now, uh, I think there are things that are a lot more relevant to people's actual life that they should know about these systems. So uh, you know, I'm a professor here. I, I teach. I have a lot of colleagues who are professors. Um, I, you know, talk to a lot of other professors. And, uh, you know, a lot of professors are just terrified of chat GPT uh, being used as a tool for cheating. And so, um, you know, students can just generate, you know, essays. They can get generate, like, good, plausible responses to a lot of uh, things. And, um, you know... I think one misconception that people have, which is really unfortunate because it's causing a lot of people a lot of a lot of grief right now, is uh, that there are these websites that claim that you can put in some text and it will tell you whether it was generated by an AI model or not. Uh, that is not foolproof. That doesn't really exist in a real way. There is no real way to tell whether something was generated by an AI model or a human. Uh, and that's something that I wish more people knew and understood. If there are any of the misconceptions that perhaps you could um, you know, put right, then that, that would be terrific. I mean, you are saying quite categorically there that the idea of a mind-reading device um, is, is not really realistic with this technology in the foreseeable future. Is that correct? I mean, okay, so the distinction that I drew between like what we've done and mind-reading is something like, can it get at everything that's happening in your head right now? Or can it just get a few things, the things that maybe you want to put out there, right? Uh, currently, it seems like it's just the big things that it can get at. I don't think that's a fundamental limitation. Uh, and so that's something that we're looking at is, you know, how far can that go? Uh, and I think that's important to know, right? Before this kind of technology uh, becomes widely used, like uh, what kind of information that you might want to keep private, could it actually extract from your brain as you're just thinking about things um that's doesn't seem to be the case right now again but like uh that might be the case in a few years that that's possible so yeah but but is it the case that if you were to if someone was to give you 10 billion dollars and say build a machine that mines somebody's memories you just could not deliver that machine is that is that that is as far as we know that's pretty impossible right again even if like this is, there are projects like not quite at the you know billion dollar scale, but at the, I think there was a hundred million dollar project to um, do what would be required to that to one cubic millimeter of mouse brain, right? So it's like if you can take one cubic millimeter of mouse brain uh, and reconstruct every single neuron in that cubic millimeter of mouse brain and every connection between those neurons. It's like, that's what you would need to do to actually read out memories. And you need to do that for a whole brain that is a human brain and not a mouse brain, right? And then you would need to know how to interpret that, which is another stage of like, 
we have no idea if that's even possible, right? Even if you could map out all these connections, which are where the memories are stored, they're just in like the strengths of these connections uh, between our neurons. Uh, how could you actually look, even if you had all that data, if, even if you could generate that data, which again would require actually taking the brain and you know freezing it and slicing it up into like nanometer sections without screwing up a single one, because if you screw up one, then you've lost everything, right? Uh, so doing that perfectly, reconstructing all of it, even then we wouldn't know how to read out memory. So it's like that is, I think, really at the level of like that is impossible. But yeah, what 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 would be possible? What would be possible with unlimited funds? Do you think um, if 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 all bets were off and uh, budget was not uh, an issue, what do you think could be possible? Yeah. So. Uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in uh, is, you know, the kind of main focus of our work, what we really want to do is we want to understand how the brain does the things that it does, right? Like, how does the brain process language? Like, that's our deep scientific question, right? Uh, and one way that we do that is we build better and better models of what the brain is doing as it's processing language, right? So we have all this data of people listening to, to stories, listening to podcasts, and then we use these to build the computational models that are sort of mimicking what the brain is doing. That's the kind of thing that I think we could do a much, much better job. We could build a much better model of how the brain is actually doing this stuff. And that's that's what I think would be both like interesting scientifically and would also give us potentially much better uh, like these decoding models, a much better ability to like read out uh, you know, with more precision, uh, what a person is maybe trying to say, or um, even just thinking at a moment. So that's the kind of thing that I would feel comfortable saying, like that is in the future, that's like, you know, kind of what we're moving toward. And if I had a massive budget, like that's what I would work on today, um, is just getting like much bigger data sets and gigantic computers to fit these kinds of models, because uh, whatever, all that stuff is expensive. But yeah. You said that uh, you'd taken part in an experiment and you'd see the dragon on screen. So I'm guessing that you've got some fiction in there as well as some some fact um, um, in terms of the images and the audio that you're um, hearing or listening to. Actually, uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Uh, for the training data, it was all nonfiction. Okay. I mean, okay, uh, there was maybe some like fictional but realistic kind of love stories in there. But most of our training data was from uh, this podcast, The Moth Radio Hour, which uh, is really lovely. I strongly recommend everyone should listen to it. Uh, it's people telling true autobiographical stories on stage. So they're all true. And then we had like TED Talks and other things like this too. So mostly nonfiction. For our tests, we had you know this kind of fantasy uh, video. Uh, and interestingly, so... The decoder did a very good job at getting at some aspects of this, like kind of what the action was that was happening, the stuff that was within the realm of its training data, right? So that like somebody is being hit, somebody is bleeding, somebody is helping somebody else, right? It's like those kinds of things that got the fact that there was a dragon involved completely missed, completely missed by the model because it had never seen that. It, like there, there were no stories about dragons in our training set. It didn't know what that was. But does the brain see a, a, a dragon and a penguin any differently? Yeah, well, sure, right? I mean, would it see both as animals, perhaps? Maybe, yeah, yeah, right? Even so, though, Even though one of them doesn't exist? 
Sure. But I mean, I think there are a lot of animals that I've never seen in real life uh, that I, you know, I know exist, but I are maybe not that different to me than a dragon, which doesn't exist, but looks like it could be real. I, I don't know. This is fascinating. Is it? So th- this leads us on to popular culture. And, um, and if we're seeing things uh, on a screen, I'm sure that we've all seen some, some movies on the screen that involve you know, mind reading or, or this kind of technology. Are there any, any films that you've seen that you've thought, well, that's ridiculous, that's absolutely ridiculous, that'll never happen, and any way you thought, well, oh, they've got something there, there's something that might work? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Some people liken this to Minority Report, which I think is a massive stretch and doesn't even really fit this at all. So, I mean, for one, that was like... Uh, people who could see the future, right? Specifically, like that was that was the the precogs in Minority Report. Uh, and then that those people could see into other people's brains. They could, you know, understand what they were going to do in the future. Uh, and this is, um, I don't know, beyond the pale. It's, it's a fun idea and it's an interesting kind of ethical, philosophical question. Like if you know somebody is going to commit a crime with some probability, like what, what do you do in that situation? And I think that's, you know, Phil Kiddick is very good at writing stories like that. And that's why that's a you know compelling story. Um, but I think that's very far from any kind of reality. Uh, whereas something like The Matrix, I think is is really interesting and, and potentially, I wouldn't say like more realistic in terms of whatever AI doom, but um, the idea that you could have neural interfaces that work uh, like theirs do is more realistic to me. And I guess all of these become, as you just said, useful language for discussing the ethics of these things. I mean, even if if someone says it's, it's a minority report situation, that's shorthand for something that is very quickly grasped um, as, as as an issue, perhaps. And mm-hmm. um, so, how about John, John in the morning? I believe um, was the one where he could download data into his brain, three hundred twenty gigabytes into his brain. That's brain, I seem to remember. Are we going to be seeing anything like that, where people can download and upload things into their brain? I, I think we're a very long way from that. So that would be more like uh, this, you know, reading and writing memories kind of idea. So you'd have to get down to kind of the molecular scale of manipulating things in a living brain. And I have no idea how we would do that. You know, this is. You can say like, oh, there's nanotechnology involved, like nano robots in the brain do something. But this is very science fiction, like you know, deep science fiction. But do we live with, we, we live in, in a remarkable period of history, don't we? I mean, that's the way it feels. I mean, the last couple of years just feel like there's something different, like the pace of change has increased. Is that the way that you feel? Yes, but I think it's really fascinating that it's very different than what I expected, what I think a lot of society expected, like what would happen. So the comparison that I really like is, uh, and when I was growing up, I watched a lot of Star Trek. Star Trek The Next Generation was like my, that was my jam, right? Uh, data. I love data. This idea of like an artificial person who was kind of learning how to be a person, uh, not quite human, but you know, almost human. I found him like deeply fascinating. I love the idea of AI from that. Uh, and then also, uh, another thing I loved was Mystery Science Theater 3000. Have you seen this? Is this a... Okay. okay. I'm aware of it. Yes. So, you know, it's... Um, it's goofy. It's like uh, a guy and his two robot pals, like sitting and watching B movies and making fun of them. Right. That's that's the gist. So his two robot pals, um, 
uh, Crow and uh, I don't remember the other one's name. Uh, they're immobile little things, right? So it's like they have kind of a mouth that can go like this and they can maybe like move their arms, but they can't actually do anything in the real world. They're, they're you know, pretty useless. Uh, and I think it is deeply wildly fascinating that um i think what we have with uh you know chat gpt gpt4 like these kinds of models it's actually much more like you know crow from mystery science theater 3000 you know something that can understand language that can kind of be funny that can like crack wise about things that can understand you know innuendo and suggestions and whatever uh it's actually much more like that idea of a robot than like data, which was like, you know, this very, you know, capable sort of humanoid uh, robot who's, you know, incredibly agile and can do all kinds of things in the real world, uh, but like can't use contractions in English because that is, you know, illogical somehow, can't really understand when people express emotion, where it turns out that like, that's kind of the easy thing, right? It's like, if we train these models on like every piece of text that humans have ever written, that it's like, it turns out we're pretty good at explaining and expressing emotions in writing. It's like, this is what writers do, right? That's like the goal of, I don't know, whatever, among other things, of course. But it's like, we get models that are very good at that kind of thing, which like our traditional idea of a robot that's like based purely on logic is very bad at that kind of thing. Uh, but instead we have, yeah, this incredible kind of thing that looks like intelligence and can understand a lot of stuff about humanity and human culture uh but we don't have something that can walk around reliably and like open doors for itself right it, it, it's, it's just it's weird how this future has evolved i think it's just it's very different than what i would have expected 20 30 years ago who do you think has got? The, do you think anybody's capable of predicting the future at the moment? I mean, or do you think that it's all going to be a surprise? Somebody's predictions are always right because there are a lot of science fiction writers out there who write a lot of different things. They're always, you know, trying to write different things than each other, and some of those predictions are going to be kind of right, right? And that's maybe prescience being clever and thinking about like how could this affect the world, but it's also uh, I don't know. Um, Maybe just kind of luck that there are so many things out there that some of them have to be right. Right, and, uh, and, and then the large language models come in and hoover up all that science fiction text, and and then we ought to complete the future um, because it, we've written it in the past, I guess, in science fiction. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's right. Like, do, do, are they just going to like follow what we say in science fiction? So one. Um, Set of science. I, I'm a big science fiction reader. I love reading a science fiction. Uh, one set of books that I read recently that um, I found both like weirdly realistic as a plausible like vision of the future, and also like deeply like utterly despairing as a vision of the future is um, the uh, Atlas series by Emma Newman, who's a, a British writer. Uh, it's a series of books that kind of follows humanity in like maybe 200 years um, where neural interfaces have become ubiquitous. Um, nation states have kind of become uh, uh, obsolete in the face of, you know, large corporations who can uh, engage in like near slave labor by controlling people through their neural interfaces. And, this kind of thing I find like 
yeah, depressingly potentially a future that could exist. Um, I don't want to sound like too, whatever, like loony lefty, but like a lot of the more realistic fears I think we should have about this kind of technology, even in the kind of near term, are really things that are downstream of capitalism. That it's like when profit motive uh, intersects with, um, you know, ability to not necessarily control people, but, uh, you know, extract information from people, then I think that could cause uh, really actually bad things to happen, right? So, you know, one thing that, um, for example, uh, Nita Farahani writes about in her book is um, uh, it's become kind of popular actually lately for uh, trucking companies uh, to use uh, basic EEG headsets. So um, some even uh, require their drivers to like wear these EEG headsets that monitor wakefulness, right? So EEG is it's very bad for a lot of things, but it's actually pretty good at telling you whether somebody is sleepy or not because there's a very strong signature of like if you're kind of drowsy, then this specific signal kind of grows and it's easy to extract, right? So this is used uh, on people who operate heavy machinery around mines, for example. And I think that's kind of a good thing. That seems like a sensible thing, right? Uh, but I think it's kind of a hop, skip, and a jump from there. Suppose our kind of technology that can, you know, decode uh, words, can decode language. Suppose that kind of thing worked with like an Efner's helmet. Uh, suppose some large company um, requires that their workers wear this kind of helmet to monitor, you know, what they're doing for I don't know quality control purposes or to just interface with machines at work. I don't know. And then suppose that company coincidentally um, looks for any time the word union crosses their workers' brains, right? Like this is the kind of thing that I think is um, plausible and actually kind of scary. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know that there are like really good solutions to this. I think the best solutions that we have are probably legal in terms of like... Um, you know, making sure that uh, maybe people have very fine-grained consent for what kinds of information can be read out of their brains, right? So uh, even if, you know, your work maybe requires you to use some kind of brain imaging decoding device, uh, even so, like, are there things that you could consent not to be read out or that would be you know illegal to read out from someone without their explicit consent? That's the kind of thing that I think is important regulation for this kind of technology in the future. Subscribe to the Hello Computer channel here on YouTube to hear more interviews with experts as the world comes to terms with thinking machines.